The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Some of you know we've been uh, looking at the book The Wise Heart by Jack Hornfield and uh, following some of the themes from his book. And recently we were looking at chapter two, which is about compassion. And the principle here is compassion is our deepest nature. It arises from interconnection with all things. So Jack Hornfield's coming up with some Buddhist, some principles of Buddhist psychology, the teachings of the Buddha. And one of them is this truth, I guess we'd say, of compassion, that it's somehow reflective of our deepest nature. And we could have an argument, you know, well, look at the world. How could compassion be, you know, something inherent? But we don't want to do it in terms of history or in terms of what we see around us even. What we really want to do is the investigation in our own heart. You know, what is our deepest nature? So I want to talk a little bit about that. Last week I mentioned that you know, in terms of spiritual friendship and just being in with other beings, and some of them wise, at least wise in moments, we learn a lot about compassion. And it often has to do with seeing how others relate to suffering or difficulty in their life. It can be quite powerful. And I, I just mentioned three ways. I'm, I want to review that from last week. One of the things that we can learn from our wise friends or our friends when they're being wise is just the sense that difficulty isn't wrong. You know, it's so amazing that when people get sick or experience some kind of loss, we can feel almost as if something bad has happened. Isn't that interesting how we equate uh, bad things like cancer or job loss or we, we equate it with like evil. But what are wise friends, and you know, sometimes we're the wise friend, what we can manifest sometimes is a quality of not being surprised when difficult things happen to us or to other people. I mean, think about this for a minute. This would be a real radical change. doesn't mean we don't deal with cancer or don't deal with loss or this or that, but we don't make that extra effort to turn it into something evil or terrible or in a qualitative sense. So I'm not saying it isn't objectively the pain that somebody or that I'm experiencing isn't unpleasant. I'm not making that argument. Just the qualitative notion that difficulties, pain, loss, that somehow it's wrong or shouldn't, it doesn't belong, you know, in our human realm. 
that there shouldn't be pain or there shouldn't be loss, there shouldn't be illness. It's like how Ajahn Tamito sometimes makes fun of us how, uh, you know, we like birth, but we don't like death. And, you know, you don't get one without the other. You can't have cuddly little babies without people dying. If people are born, inevitably, of course, they're going to age and get sick and die. So to turn death into something bad, when it's it's just part of the fabric, you don't you don't get this life without death. So this is one thing we can do for each other as wise friends, and it's a real gateway into compassion, of course, is to normalize the experience of difficulty, extreme difficulty, ordinary difficulty. So you know how it is when you run into a friend that's had something bad happen, and sometimes they're really asking you to be codependent in supporting their huge drama about how bad this is, right? And other times, our wise friends, they're not asking for that. Well, yeah, this happened. Yeah, it hurts. But but not um, sort of asking you to join them in whipping up some notion that it shouldn't be this way, this is wrong, this is unfair. And it really comes, and this is not a small bit of wisdom, it comes from the notion that, of course, things happen. As uh, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, used to say over and over again, anything can happen anytime. And, and it's not a mistake when it happens. You know, good things too can happen, of course, but bad things can happen. So another, another gateway into compassion arising from our relationship to suffering, and especially in seeing it in other people, is uh, not only are our wise friends sometimes not surprised by difficulty when it arises, and not turning it into something evil. But there's even this sense that, and it's workable. And you know, we see this sometimes like people who get cancer and or who, you know, and at first maybe they're in shock and maybe in denial, maybe raged, enraged. But it's interesting, isn't it? When people have terrible difficult situations going on, that at times they're okay with it. Doesn't mean that they'd ever choose that to be going on, but they're just dealing with it. It's workable, meaning they can put one foot in front of the other, they can do the next thing that needs to be done. And this is a beautiful demonstration for us to see, because I don't know what it is for you, but probably everybody here, <clears throat> there's something to us right now that's completely unacceptable, whatever that might be. And, but whatever it is, whatever we imagine would be unacceptable, there are more than a few people on this planet right now that are experiencing that. And some of those people experiencing that, at least in moments, aren't struggling against it. They're just doing the next thing. 
with an attitude that it's workable. Now, when I say it's workable, I don't mean that they're going to survive, like whatever it is, maybe will kill them. But that, you know, even if somebody is on their way to death, on their deathbed, on their way to death, we can have the understanding, well, this is workable. Dying is workable. It's bearable. It's something I can deal with. We don't have to have the notion, because it's bad, that we can't deal with it. Like, why not have an attitude? Why not at least open our minds to the attitude that everything is workable? And this gives us a flavor of what compassion is, because sometimes we think compassion is this force in the mind and heart that wants to address suffering in order to make it go away. <laughs> but that last part is not compassion. Compassion is that movement in the heart that wants to respond to suffering, but not in order to make it go away. To respond to suffering because that's what the heart is moved to do. And the suffering is either going to go away or it's not going to go away. But in no, it doesn't matter to the compassion. Because the compassion we feel at times, when it's real compassion, it isn't dependent on the bad thing going away or the difficult thing going away. It's in a way, it's, in its, for its own sake. We want to respond with love, with action, because we want to respond with action or love. It's not because it has to go away. It's unworkable. It's got to stop. So that's a manifestation of compassion. When somebody is in a difficult state, whatever that might be, and they're just doing the next thing, showing up, allowing their heart, mind, body to respond in the best way they know how to respond in that moment, that's an expression of compassion. Now, it doesn't mean, like I said, it doesn't mean that they're going to figure it out, make it go away. But just that the heart, mind, body can work with this. That's what compassion allows. Imagine what a, I, I mentioned this sometimes, what an um, act of, of violence almost it is when we're around somebody suffering and we don't want it to be that way. You know, we want their cancer to go away or we want their illness to go away or their loss to go away. And basically, our mind is resisting the way that it is. And worse than that, we're, we're uh, reinforcing, activating in that other person their own resistance to it, which is just, of course, more suffering. So much better it would be in one way or another. You know, the, the actual way we do this, of course, depends on us being in the moment, responding creatively. But in some way, if we can help the person, help ourselves acknowledge, well, it's like this now. What would be a beautiful, creative, loving way to respond to the fact that it's like this now? So that the response is beautiful even if whatever it is that's going on that's bad doesn't change or gets worse even. Because sometimes all we can do is 
keep things from getting even more worse, you know, by keeping the heart loving and open. Just that can be the limit of what we can do, you know, because sometimes people are just dying and there's nothing you're going to do to stop that. Or sometimes there aren't any jobs for the person to have. So there's, it doesn't matter if you help them write a resume or if you... But the way that the person relates to it and the way that we relate to their loss or their difficult situation, that matters. Like not reinforcing for them that they can't, this can't be this way. And then the last point I made last week, just in terms of from each other and how compassion maybe surprisingly arises for us is this, we find that when we uh, understand that difficulty is normal, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and how. That we're always cycling through good times and not so good times. And that we can live with this attitude that everything's workable, that the heart mind, body can relax and open to whatever, however our life is or however anybody's life is. We're capable of showing up and being with it. Then we realize something even more extraordinary, and this is what I want to dig into a little bit tonight, which is when we do that, something begins to open up. When we're really there, not surprised, by what we call dukkha in the Buddhist tradition. Dukkha is a word for stress or suffering or what is difficult to bear is probably the best definition of dukkha. What's difficult to bear? So not only are we able to normalize it, not to be surprised by it, to kind of stay loose with it, working with it, responding to it, engaging it, not freezing up, then something even more powerful can open up. We could call that insight or awakening or real love, real compassion. And the image that came to mind when I was reflecting on this earlier is, uh, some of you know how when water gets colder and colder, at some point it gets a little denser, like most materials do when they get colder. And then at some point as it starts to form crystals, I think, I don't know how that, what that chemical process is, it expands. So ice is less dense than water. That's why it floats, right? And so that's why we get frost heaves. And uh, if you live in New England where there are a lot of stones in the soil, I've done a lot of retreat practice in New England. And uh, if you walk the paths every day in the fall and... Uh, uh, during the fall, you know, some days are cold, nights are cold, and you get the frost, you get these little heaves that weren't there the, the day before. And sometimes they push up rocks, you know. That's, it used to be the joke that, you know, I grow rocks because every year there are more rocks in the field, and you clear them out, and then there's more rocks the next year. It's, it's this process of water underneath, and then it freezes, and it expands, and it pushes things up, and slowly, little by little, rocks get forced to the surface. Now the interesting thing about this natural process is it's really unstoppable. 
it's a chemical process that has tremendous force to break apart rocks. I mean, most of the mountains have fallen apart through this process of water getting in the little crevices, and then it freezes, and it expands, and it breaks apart rock. And it's similarly, I think, with love and compassion, which is, is, is this simple process of showing up when we connect with the way it is. When our heart or mind brings a sense of relaxation and clarity to how it is, so that natural sensitivity, that natural capacity to show up, when it shows up with suffering, our suffering or somebody else's suffering, something natural happens, this expansion that's unstoppable. And what begins to break apart, you know, what mountain begins to break apart are all of our, I think one teacher once called it, ideologies of isolation. You know, all of our strong beliefs that we're apart, that we're separate, that that's, that their, that's their business. You know how we do that when we're around suffering, where I care about you, but that's, this is your life. You know, I don't understand your fate, your destiny, your karma, but, you know, I care about you, but this is, and we create these boundaries all the time. Somebody hits a squirrel in front of us, we see it on the road, and its last throws before it dies, you know, and we just, well, God damn it, they should know to stay off the roads. You know, we have these ways of creating boundaries that uh, give us, that keep our heart from breaking. But when we don't do that, when we actually allow the heart to be relaxed, to see clearly, to really let in the world as it is, our heart breaks just like the mountains break apart. There's that when awareness, that simple, pure awareness, sees vulnerability, sees impermanence, the uncertainty of life, and how uh, true that is, how that that's the very definition of life, that it's uncertain, that there's good things and there are bad things, and keep they keep flowing onward, and there's no one controlling it, the flow of good and bad events. When the heart is clear and sees that, it breaks in a good way. It doesn't feel good, necessarily. It actually can hurt when the heart breaks like this. But with a deeper perspective and more trust, we, we realize it hurts good. It feels good, this breaking apart of the heart. We call it insight. This is how it feels for our rigid, narrow, self-centered beliefs to break apart. And the heart begins to open into not a different kind of belief, like a don't-know mind, like not needing ideas about good or bad, whether this is fair or not fair, whether there should be wars or not, whether it's right that the world, the earth, the ecosystem is falling apart because of man-made events person-made events. It's not, these questions aren't really relevant. What's relevant is the heart cares. The heart's present. The heart sees things as they are. And the heart's moved 
to engage, to respond, to do the next thing, whatever that might be. But not in order to make the world other than what it is, because that would be part of some fixed notion. The response is more of a, um, an organic, natural thing. You know, one of the images that's used is like, if we bump our head or cut our finger, we don't have to reflect for any length of time, well, should I take care of it? You know, we just take care of it. And, and even beyond our taking care of our own body, you know, if we, if we were walking down the sidewalk and there's a little baby cold or lost or, you know, we wouldn't have to sort of rally some kind of appropriate response. We would just respond when there's a need. So what's that about? How we take care of ourselves, how we take care of... And then we realize, oh, it's not, it's not that we have to learn how to be compassionate. It's really about this dynamic. We have to bring our sensitivity to this truth of uncertainty, to the truth of good or pleasant and unpleasant things arising for us and others. And then that's what breaks apart the heart, any fixed notions, any rigidity. So compassion is really just another way of saying wisdom or insight. Insight isn't something we can do. We can't be wise or make wisdom happen. Oh, i got to really do this with wisdom. Wisdom is a natural um, arising when awareness connects with the way things are. And, or in Buddhist terms, you say, when the Buddha knows Dhamma, the Buddha, the one who knows that simple awareness, empty awareness, unrestricted awareness, when that knows things as they are, then enlightened action happens. Or in Buddhist terms, we say Sangha arises. Sangha is like the beautiful, wise qualities that people, human beings, can manifest at times when there's Buddha seeing Dhamma. So when the heart or mind that's clear and pure opens to things as they are, then the heart, body, mind responds as Sangha, as like enlightened action. Without Mark or anybody having to figure out. And it doesn't mean what we do helps in some objective sense. What's beautiful about the action is it's coming from a beautiful, natural place, an organic place, not a self-centered place, not out of fear, not out of need. It's coming, in a sense, out of the earth or out of nature, from nature. Awareness is nature. You know, that sensitivity is nature. So when that relaxed, clear heart meets life as it is, nature is what happens, you know, this enlightened, pure, good nature. Given the causes and conditions, it's going to do what it's going to do. But there's a real freedom. This is what we're learning to give our life over to. It's like we're getting out of the way. And you could say we're letting love, you know, we're giving our life over to love. Well, love or compassion or whatever you want to call it isn't a thing. It isn't a noun. It's a process, a process of the mind, the clear, empty mind, the clear, empty seeing, knowing, 
knowing things as they are and the natural response that comes out of that moment by moment by moment so we're we're moving in you know practicing in order to move into this process which is has the quality of freedom because it's self-generating you know awareness meeting things as they are and responding it doesn't ever end you know it's it's self uh, generating enlightened action leading to enlightened action or awakened action leading to awakened action there's no need for somebody being good or somebody being holy or somebody being enlightened it would only gum it up make it sticky So that's something you can look for, is uh, when <clears throat> when your heart has uh, opened to something difficult in your own life or in somebody around you, and you have that quality of clarity and relaxation, let's say in the proximity of what's difficult, and look for that natural movement of the heart. You know, I use the word expansion just to tie it in a little bit more to that simile of ice or water freezing and then expanding into ice. But look for that movement of the heart. And you'll notice it can't really be contained. It's actually, at times, a little scary. The, that movement, that sense of caring or sense of love, it can be scary because we don't know where it's going to go or what it's going to say and we're we're afraid we might do something stupid or might overexpose ourselves and so there's often a battle between that natural beautiful movement of the heart and maybe what we might think of as being the more rational or you know mind wait a minute and uh, but it's really it's not about choosing you know the heart or the mind you know that's often what we think well this is the intellect or the rational mind and this is the emotional mind and I don't trust the emotional it's not really like that although it may seem that way but it what is true I think uh, it takes some time to trust that movement of the heart because what it really is more of a battle between the battle between our ideas about life about who I am and who you are and about what's right and wrong and this more natural organic way of living where we don't really have ideas about what's right or wrong or what's going to happen we only know what we're moved to do now we don't know what it's going to lead to we don't know all the steps you know, we're moved to say something, but we don't know what we're going to say next, or what we expect the other person. We're just feel moved to do this, to say this, to keep quiet, to stand up, to sit down. You see, it's a little different than our lives of rehearsal. <laughs> you know, we've got, we've got a strategy. This is what I'll do, and then she'll say that, and then I'll do this. <laughs> And I'm sure you've noticed how heavy that is to constantly be rehearsing. And then we hate it, you know, and then and then we just go, we, we want to go 
blind, basically. But see, that's not appropriate either, just to sort of blindly thrash our way through life. That doesn't work either. So this is not being blind because we're, in a sense, the heart is wide awake. We're fully sensitized, fully there, awake, feeling. It's like uh, every tendril, every uh, avenue of sensitivity has been cleared. So there's a, a profound wakefulness, vividness, and relaxation, trust. So it's, it's setting in motion this nimble responsivity. It's like, in terms of speech and action and thought, it's capable of going any direction because there's no preset expectation in the mind. The only, all of the sort of, uh, the only intention, I guess we'd say, is to connect, to be open, is another way to say it. And we're letting our movement through life, the action, the words, the thoughts, we're allowing it to come out of the sensitivity, you know, being connected. Now, being connected doesn't mean we don't have access to the past and our memories, right? Because what are we connecting to? We're connecting to the way it is. The way it is also includes our thoughts about things, or our past experience, for example. So it isn't about suppressing anything or repressing anything. It's about investing in connection. That's really the avenue of compassion. Generally, you know, we learn it first by just learning how to show up with our own life, our own pain, our own breath, and then, of course, our own distractions that interrupt the attention to the breath, the restlessness in the body, the dullness in the mind, the doubt that we know what we're doing. So we learn so much by learning how to include all of this stuff. Like our meditation practice, more than anything, is learning how to include what we call Dhamma, the way it is, or Dharma, the way it is. So we have to tease out these idealistic notions that I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be with the breath. It's like we imagine a utopia. That's what meditation practice is. It's about we're practicing being in a utopia. No. We're practicing opening to the way that it is. And the breath is just to help give the mind some stability in that. So it's like a tether. We're either with the breath or we're not with the breath. But we're less likely to be lost for long periods of time when we have this intention to be with the breath. Because then it's just more easy to notice I'm, you know, the mind is knowing the breath or the mind is not with the breath. It just stands out more when we use that intention to be with the breath, or to be with the body, or to be with hearing. You know, we often hear about uh, non-dualism. And uh, what does that really mean? And it's really about learning how to show up. There's a, 
phrase I heard, I, I'm not sure who said it, but I'm as close to you. See, how does it go? I'm as close to you as you are to me. So this, I think the way I heard this is, uh, uh, this is a God's response to some seeker. You know, I'm as close to you as you are to me. And uh, so we can think of this, you know, in Buddhist terms, we think about this as truth or being close to understanding things clearly, deeply as they are. And the moment, the way it is, what we call Dhamma, this is like if we want to understand the coming together is, well, we have to take the first step to open. It's not like we can, you know, remain distracted or caught in our thoughts about things and expect the world to open up. The world opens up when we move, take us, in a sense, a step toward. And that step toward is really about dropping distraction, dropping fear, dropping control. I mean, we don't have to do anything to connect with the world as it is, because it's already as it is. I mean, that's the amazing thing. It's already here. Life as it actually is, any truth there is, if it's anywhere, where else could it be but right here? There are no, no other secret compartments <laughs> that I know of. There's just the here and now. I mean, think about that for a moment. Where else could things be? Any kind of truth. It has to be here. So the biggest obstacle, of course, is doubt. Doubt that this moment is significant or relevant. It's got to be somewhere else. As if, I mean, that's just a concept, somewhere else. Like, where would that be? So the movement toward compassion is the same movement towards wisdom. And it's really the dropping away of superficiality, the superficiality of our ideas about things, our concepts about things, and um, a cultivation of the relevance of Dhamma, the way it is now, how it is now, which of course seems so irrelevant, <laughs> so ironically irrelevant, but it isn't. And of course, it isn't that my knee pain is so mystical and profound or the sound of my voice is so important. What's relevant is the opening. It's the relaxation. That's what's so transforming is the heart relaxing, the heart being interested, the sort of the mind opening itself up. It's not that it's opening itself up to the breath or even opening it up, opening up to a friend in need. What's really beautiful is the opening itself, the dropping away of the superficiality, the dropping away of our ideas about things. That's the one beautiful thing. And of course, when we're willing to be open and undefendant and forgiving and transparent with another person, we're modeling exactly what would be useful for that person. Because what they need to do is the same thing. They need to open to their life as it is. They need to forgive and accept. 
they need to say yes. So if that's what we're doing, this is why, this is, uh, you know, really how we take care of everybody. So maybe I'll leave it here so we have time to hear from other people in the group. You probably have had these moments naturally arise at times. It would be nice to hear some stories or examples. Also notice probably at times what gets in the way, how you worked with that, maybe you couldn't work with it. That would be good to hear about. And of course, any questions about the talk, about compassion. So what comes to mind? Yeah, great. And the, 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 the couple of thoughts about that. So that is a moment of wisdom inside compassion, you know, just to acknowledge that. And but the mind is going to go, yeah, but I still might lose my job, you know. And so that uh, insight needs to include, needs to integrate the full impact of vulnerability. It's like it can't be a defensive stance, like acceptance. We don't accept in order to alleviate the pain in our heart. We accept because this is how it is. So when, so when we open to the vulnerability and the fear that comes from the vulnerability, when we really open to it and include it, we're basically 
integrating or opening to all the bad things that might happen. We're, in a way, we're willing to feel what that would be like now in order not to be surprised by it. It's almost like making peace with our death, making peace with all the loss we could experience, making peace with the full range of experience. And then it doesn't matter whether it happens or not, because we're not counting on it not happening for the bad stuff or counting on it happening for the good stuff. We've made peace that it could be this way, it could be that way, it could be any way. And I've opened my heart and mind to everything. Because that's what our imagination does anyway, except we tend to freak out when we start opening to that stuff. But now we're practicing with wisdom. Or we imagine what could happen, because that we can't stop that. The mind is going to imagine what can happen to us. It takes a lot of distraction not to do that. And see how that's the natural that that's that natural expansion. Like once our heart gets tenderized, it's like this, our fear. What is actually the difference between my fear and your fear? I mean, your fear may be about this, and my fear may be about that. But that it's really the same. It's like in practice, we often we use the fear, the pain, the loss to really universalize it, so that we see that it isn't personal. Fear is not personal. It feels personal because we're fixated on the the object that we think is causing the fear. But it's just the heart relating to the inevitable vulnerability, uncertainty in life. Well, this is true for everybody. Yeah, thanks, Greg, for bringing that up. Did you have a thought? Say your name, please. Bryce. Bryce. I've been practicing for a few years on and off. One thing that I've had trouble with for at least the last few years is I have some tension on my right side. Sometimes pain, sometimes discomfort. So it's kind of behind my mind.
Well, you know, what you said was right on about how, you know, the one time it happened that you described, you you said you dropped or stopped trying to fix it or trying to work with it. I forget ex- your exact words, but something like that, right? Well, my experience, well, my experience was, you know, I was able to let go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to let go of that agenda, that desire yeah. to have it go away. And that was the only time when I finally was able to, I guess, have it go away. Right. <laughs> so, you know, like in the instructions during the guided sit tonight, I was talking about letting things move. And uh, we, we have to, you, what you want to do is uh, spend some time reflecting on that uh, moment when you were relating to this tension on your right side. And that, that realization about how you were just going to give up the trying to figure it out, trying to make it go away or whatever. Because there's a deep principle there, of course. I mean, it's obvious to all of us. But we need to get this in our bones that there's something about surrender. Because otherwise, any spiritual practice we do, whether it's meditation or something else, it's going to be an ego trip. On subtle level or not so subtle level, it will be just another ego trip. And it's endless. And it can get really, really, really subtle, too. So we think we're doing some profound spiritual work, but we're just doing ego work in a very refined, subtle way. And we all will get trapped in this. We all are trapped in this to some degree. But when we have experiences like that, and then we reflect on them in hindsight, we always realize that the the gateway to insight and real transformation, meaningful transformation, the breaking down of a sense of separation, it's always it always arises with letting go what we don't want to let go of. You know, it's always about that it's never a strategic move. You know, it's always a giving up. Because and often that giving up isn't, uh, it's not strategic, it's more like I'm giving up because either there's a spiritual exhaustion, I just can't hold it up anymore, and we put it down, or, or there's some sense, or it's accidental, you know, sometimes it's just accidental in the sense that, not really accidental, but we don't understand how it happened. There were just the right causes and conditions there, and it dropped away. Or, uh, there's some wisdom, uh, basically uh, kind of a wisdom that it's like a death, just an un- understanding of the ego's death and how there's a doorway there. And we can, and with some experience, we can start uh, intentionally knocking on that door. But it's always a death, even though we may be intentionally letting go now, it's always a stripping away or a dropping what we don't want to drop. But we have a, an intuitive sense that this is the way, there isn't any other way. So, you know, there are different metaphors in the spiritual traditions that talk about how um, the path takes absolutely everything. You know, nothing is left. It's a stripping away. And 
that's not what we really want to hear. You know, we, we come to meditation center like Common Ground thinking we're going to polish our life up and make it nice and shiny and um, get the energy together and maybe get a few psychic powers. And <laughs> but it, it's really a breaking down, stripping away. That's why I like that metaphor of uh, water turning to ice and breaking apart the facade of a mountain. You know, it's, it's such a visceral image. And it's like what awareness does. It's really breaking apart um, and kind of exposing this, the mind to itself, exposing the sort of conditioned mind to itself. And that it just sort of breaks everything. It can't hold up to awareness. Our ignorance, our self-centered ways, it can't hold up to simple awareness. It doesn't make sense when it's seen clearly. It only makes sense in the shadows of distraction, when we're too busy running around with our heads cut off. Then it makes sense to live the way we're living. But when we relax enough, cultivate enough sensitivity and clarity, just living with a self-centered view just does not make sense. And uh, the mind won't bear it, you know, the, the heart, mind, and the capital M sense. It just won't bear it. It just starts to fall apart. So there's uh, that, that insight you had is really important to experiment like to really if you can get back to the taste you had right then not I mean you might want to capture with words but you don't need words it's just the taste of what the mind did in that moment that's how you use that insight and even if it were was months ago it doesn't matter you because it was a significant event you might be able to get back to the taste what did the mind do in that moment? What did it let go of in that moment? And then that's what you can cultivate from that. Otherwise, you're going to do just what, and we all do, just what you described, which is, you know, okay, oh, that was nice. Let me do that again. Thanks, Bryce, for sharing that. That was nice to hear. Some more time. Anybody else? Yeah, Rebecca. Nothing to fix. His dukkha is just a little bit different. 
distraction doesn't work. So it's either go crazy or realize, intuitively realize the possibility of just letting things be as bad as they are. And not struggling with it. And, uh, and people can have very profound insights. Here's, I'll just end with this. There's an example in the Buddhist tradition of a monk who had gotten grabbed by a tiger who was being eaten. And the other monks who were practicing in the same woods ran toward him. <coughs> and it was you know, too late. They, they realized they couldn't do anything. But they shouted, you know, pay attention, relax. <laughs> And, and evidently, you know how these stories go. You know, he had deep insight, freed his mind, heart completely in that process by realizing that he didn't need to resist, didn't need to concoct stories about this is bad, didn't need to suffer in that experience. While, you know, obviously there would be physical pain and probably all kinds of mind states coming and going, but not to put any resistance, so just to let everything move. That's what the self does. The self inserts friction in the natural movement of thought, sensation, you know, all of life. Life just moves. You ask any physicist, you know, everything's just moving. But we have this capacity with our language, with our concepts, to insert a sense of friction. And that's what in Buddhism we call dukkha. It makes life unbearable. But we don't have to insert that friction. Doesn't mean life isn't gonna, doesn't mean a tiger's not gonna grab us. But we don't need to insert friction just because a tiger, whatever that is for us, grabs a hold of us. Thanks so much for your comments, everyone. Let's just take a few seconds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.